Numbers chapter 14. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And the Lord, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting of all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and disinherit them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance to your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as they live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. As for your children, that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. The word of the Lord. Many of you uh, probably know that I was a, an alcoholic and a drug addict for several years. 
And for a long time, I was able to hold my life together. Uh, but then things started falling apart, and eventually I reached a crisis point. I was uh, blacklisted professionally. I was facing eviction from my home. I was alienated from friends and family members, and I was destroying my body physically. One day, I was sitting in my garage doing drugs, which is what I did, and I had this momentary flash of clarity. It was like I could envision two roads in front of me. One road was the road I was already on, and I had a pretty good idea where that was leading me, uh, homelessness, possibly jail, certainly death. The other road was a road that led to, well, I didn't even know how to describe it. I just had this idea that there was another kind of life that was out there. It was available to me, a true life, a real life of joy and beauty. But I had no way that I could even conceive of that life, except in terms of what I would have to give up. No drugs, no comfort, no control, no familiarity. It meant the loss of everything I knew. So even though I believed that there was a different life out there somewhere and that it was available to me, I, I realized that the only way I could have it was by um, relinquishing the life I currently had. And I will tell you, I was terrified. Here's the question. Why is it that the idea of real life is so terrifying? I mean, think about your own life. Um, Maybe many of you realize deep down in your hearts that there are things in your life that needs to change, that there are things in your life that you need to deal with, and that if you did, you could have such a much richer, deeper, more integrated life. Why is that so scary to us? It's because the fear of losing control and comfort oftentimes is greater than the fear of some real life that we can't even imagine. Or we could say it like this, it's because fear of the freedom we don't know is greater than fear of the slavery we do. How do we move forward out of this and into the, the real life that is available to us? We're in a series on the book of Numbers, and this passage that we just read shows us a lot about um, the things that keep us trapped in fear, but it also shows us a lot about how we can move out of that fear and into the real life that God has available for us. How does that happen? Well, let's walk through this passage and see three things here that when we put them all together, it shows us how we can walk out of fear and into real life. The three things are this. We're going to see the shadows that terrify us, the God who listens to us, and the love that redeems us, okay? The shadows that terrify us, the God who listens to us, and the love that redeems us. Let's walk through this. First, the shadows that terrify us. Now, let's remember the backstory. God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and here he's leading them through the wilderness into the promised land. That's, that's a land of real life. And as we saw last week, God told them to send spies into the land, scout it out, and then come back with a report, which they do. The spies say, oh, it's a good land, flowing with milk and honey, but the people there, ooh, they're big, they're strong, they'll mow us down like grasshoppers. And all the Israelites start wailing and grumbling against Moses and Aaron, their leaders. They say this, they say, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. 
Think about that. They're saying, we wish we had died in Egypt, or we wish we, were, we wish we would die in this wilderness. Why would they say that? Well, they tell us. Look carefully at what they say next. They say, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. You know what this is? This is a story they're telling themselves. It's a story about God. He wants to kill us. It's a story about their future. We're going to die. Friends, this is one of the main things that we need to see this morning. As human beings, we're always constructing stories that help us make sense of the world we live in and help us make sense of of our lives in this world. We're always doing this. Um, We do this at a cultural level. Let me give you just a few examples of some of the stories we tell. For instance, classical liberalism is a story that says, once upon a time, humans were free and happy. But then some people's individual freedom came into conflict with other people's individual freedom. And the solution is to create a political society in which everybody's free to live however they want, as long as it doesn't interfere with somebody else's freedom to live however they want. Or another story is socialism. Socialism says, once upon a time, human beings were equal and shared the same resources. But then some people decided they wanted their own personal property, my land, my farm, my animals. And the result was inequality and oppression. The solution is to pool our resources together so that we can have social equality. Another much more recent story, we could call it the wellness story. The wellness story says once upon a time human beings were innocent and felt good about themselves, but then we were traumatized by corrupt institutions and harmful social expectations. And the solution is to construct a wellness program for ourselves that nurtures our true authentic selves. Each of these stories is telling us something about reality, whether it's freedom or equality or authenticity. As human beings, we are constantly constructing stories that help us make sense of reality. We do this culturally. We also do it individually. The challenge, of course, is what if our story is wrong? So if we go back to the Israelites in this passage, remember they had a story that said God is evil. God wants to kill us. Notice what they do next. They come up with a plan of action to respond to that story. They said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Do you see what's happening? They have a story, and they also have a plan of action to respond to that story. But then Joshua and Caleb, two of the other spies, they basically say to them, look, Israel, you you guys have the story all wrong. Here's what they say. The land we explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into this land. This is a very different story. It says the Lord is not evil. The Lord is good. God doesn't want to kill us. God wants to lead us into the land. And notice especially the part of this counter story that Joshua and Caleb are talking. It's a story that it talks about the inhabitants of the land the people of Israel are so afraid of. They say, do not be afraid of the people of the land. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. And that word protection literally is the word shadow. In context, this is probably referring to some kind of divine protection, like an angel or something like that. But the point is, it's not real. It doesn't exist it's a shadow. 
Joshua and Caleb are saying, look, Israel, you've constructed this story in your head, and then you've populated it with shadows. Listen, when we get into the land, are we going to have to strap on our swords and walk into battle? Yeah. Is that going to be dangerous? Of course. Is that scary? Absolutely it is. But most of the things you're afraid of aren't real. They don't exist. It's a shadow. Friends, as human beings, we create stories that help us make sense of reality, and that's good. We should do that. So all the stories we looked at just a moment ago, like liberalism, socialism, wellness, those are showing us important aspects of reality, like freedom, equality, authenticity. As human beings, we create stories that help us make sense of reality, but so often what we do is we then populate them with shadows. So we'll say things like, oh, that person didn't call me back. They don't like me. Or we'll say, oh, the people I need help from aren't helping me. They don't care. Or we'll say, oh, if I fail this test, I'll be a failure for the rest of my life. Or if this relationship doesn't work out, I'm always going to be alone. Psychologists call this catastrophizing. It's like when anything threatens us, we like immediately go to the worst case scenario. And please understand, I am not saying, and the Bible is certainly not saying, that there are not real threats out there. There are. But one of the main things this passage is showing us is that many of the things we fear the most aren't real. They're shadows. As human beings, we create stories to help us make sense of reality, but then so often what we do is we populate them with shadows that terrify us. What happens when we do that? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen the shadows that terrify us, but nextly, this passage shows us the God who listens to us. Remember, the Israelites, this narrative they've constructed, it's not just a narrative about the people of the land, it's a narrative about God. It's not just there's scary people out there, it's God is evil and he wants to kill us. So remember, they said, we wish we had died in Egypt, or we wish we had died in the wilderness. You know what the really scary thing about that is? The Israelites are not just saying that into thin air. They're saying it to God. Right after this, it says, then the glory of the Lord, that means literally the presence, the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Notice God is saying, they're treating me with contempt. And notice how he puts it right after this. He says, how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? That word believe literally is the word trust. God is saying, they don't trust me. Do you hear what God is saying? How often do we think about the reality that God is a person? A person. Because you think about it. Trust is a uh, something that happens in between persons. Trust is a relational category. And when we treat someone with contempt, we're actually eroding the trust that exists between persons. Have you ever been ignored? Have you ever been in a social situation and people just act like you're not even there? How does that feel? That's the worst. Contempt is a way of saying you're nothing. In fact, you're less than nothing. You're not even a person. You're not even worth acknowledging. The Israelites are acting like God's not there. They're acting like he doesn't matter. And yet God is, is a person who's always present. He's always present everywhere. 
So that when it said a little bit ago that the glory of the Lord appeared, that does not mean that up until that point God was somewhere else, uh, but now he's coming over and being present with the Israelites. No. A little bit later, God says this. He says, he talks about, he says, the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. God, God is a person who's always present everywhere. And, and when we act like God's not there, what we're doing is we're treating him with contempt. We're pretending that he's not there. That's a way of treating God with contempt, of eroding the trust that is meant to exist between us. But if we were truly aware of God's presence, that he's always present everywhere, that would completely transform everything in our lives because personal presence changes everything. For instance, I read an article some years ago um, by a man who was the superintendent at the Oregon State Penitentiary for, uh, back in the 1990s. Uh, and up until that time, Oregon hadn't executed anyone in the state for over 50 years. And this man says that when he uh, first came on the job, he was a supporter, a firm supporter of the death penalty. But while he was there, he had to oversee the execution of not one, but two men. And as a result of that experience, he no longer became a supporter of the death penalty. Why? Well, he gives several reasons in the article, but a number of times he mentions the fact that he had to look these people in the eye. So he describes one of the executions that he says that one of the condemned men um, asked that the wrist straps could be loosened because they were hurting him. And when they made the adjustments, the man looked up at the superintendent and he said, thanks, boss. And it obviously had a huge impact on this man because he keeps writing about it and mentioning in the article a number of times how he had to look these people in the eye. You see, he could feel one way about the death penalty as long as the people that were being executed weren't in the room. But as soon as the people were in the room, their personal presence changed everything. When God says, my glory fills the whole earth, he's saying, I'm always in the room. And whatever you do or say, you do or say to God. Friends, here's the really scary thing about this passage. Remember, God describes the Israelites as those who saw my glory in the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me. Now, this word disobeyed, literally what this is saying is they did not hear my voice. And we need to camp out here for just a minute. In Hebrew, the word to hear or to listen is the word shema. This is one of the most important words in the whole Bible, um, but it's not a word that only means to hear or to listen. It's a word that refers to the kind of hearing or listening that leads to action. To shema someone is to hear them in such a way that it results in action in your life. It's, it's like obedient listening, shema. So God is saying that the people didn't trust me, and because they didn't trust me, then they didn't shema my voice. But then right after that, look at what God says. I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Now, when God says, I have heard, what word do you think he's using there? That's right, shema. The Israelites would not shema God's voice. And so they said with their own voice, we wish we would die in the wilderness. Friends, what happens when we won't shema God's voice? 
God schmas our voice. In other words, if we won't listen to God and do what He says, God will listen to us and do what we say. C.S. Lewis once wrote a little fable called The Great Divorce. It's about um, a busload of tourists from hell who take a day trip to heaven. And early on in the story, one of the tourists from hell notices that all the residents of heaven are welcoming them to stay. Hey, stay, hang. You, you don't have to go back. You can stay here. But none of them are taking them up on that offer. They all want to go back. And along the way, this one soul meets a tour guide in heaven, and he asks the tour guide, hey, what about all these souls that don't want to stay here? What about them? And the tour guide says this. He says, everyone who wishes it does never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Friends, God is a person who's always present everywhere, and God is constantly, constantly inviting us deeper into His joy, deeper into His love, deeper into His life, the invitation is constant. It goes over and over and over again, like it did to the Israelites. But there will eventually come a day, and only God knows when that day is for each one of us, when if we will not shema God's voice, God will shema our voice. There's a section right at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 1, where he says that God is constantly calling out to people, but that that if people refuse to listen to God's voice and turn to Him, that eventually what happens is it says, He gave them over to the desires of their heart. That, the scariest thing that could possibly happen to you is that God would give you exactly what you are asking for. If we will not shema God's voice, God will shema our voice. If we will not listen to what God says and do what He says, God will listen to us and do what we say that, there is nothing more terrifying than that, and there would be nothing more terrifying if that was the end of the story, but it's not the end of the story, and that leads to our last point. We've just looked at the shadows that terrify us. We've also seen the God who listens to us, but lastly, we need to look at the love that redeems us. There is no doubt that this is a tragic, terrifying story, Remember, God describes Israel as those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness. They, the Israelites saw signs. They saw God send plagues down on Egypt. They saw God part the Red Sea. They saw God provide manna that was bread from heaven in the wilderness. They saw all of these signs, but they would not shema the sign. They wouldn't trust God, and as a result, they perished in the wilderness and didn't get to enter into the land. Now, if, if they saw all of those signs but, but couldn't shema God's voice, where does that leave us? I mean, we haven't seen the things they saw. How are we supposed to shema God's voice? Well, notice what God says to Moses a little bit later. God says, I will strike them, that's the Israelites, I will strike them down with a plague and disinherit them, but I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and stronger than they. God is, is making an offer to Moses. He's saying, Moses, um, I've got an offer for you. I will make you into the nation I intended them to be, and I will give you the inheritance of the land I intended them to have. 
what an offer. You think Moses ought to jump at an offer like that, right? But he doesn't. Why? It's because God called Moses to be a redeemer. Uh, I mean, a mediator, which is also a redeemer. But he called Moses to be a mediator. A mediator is someone who's so identified with the people that he can represent them to God, but also someone who's so identified with God that he can mediate God, represent God to the people. A mediator is the man in the middle. So um, God offered Moses to, to the people's identity and the people's inheritance, but instead of taking the people's identity and taking their inheritance, Moses sacrificed all of that so that the people could have it instead. And yes, many of them still perished in the wilderness, but because of Moses' mediation, the children received the promise. So if you look at um, how Moses does this, here's what it says. Moses tells God, after God makes this offer to him, he says, now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people. Now, when he says this, in the middle here especially, he's remembering back to Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, God, um, Moses said, God, show me your glory. But God told Moses, Moses, no one can see my glory and live. But what God did was he hid Moses in the cleft of a rock, and God passed by, and, um, but Moses just saw the backside of God. And when God passed by, he declared, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin. Here in this passage, Moses is remembering back to Exodus 34, and he's remembering who God is, and he's saying, God, you are a God who is abounding in love and forgiveness. I beg you now, show your love to these people. Take the inheritance away from me and give it to them. And God does. God does that for him. You know, friends, this is the pattern that we see over and over and over in the Bible. The mediator sacrifices his own joy and his own life in order that the people could have it. Now, in this case, Moses is simply refusing something that God was offering to him, but he didn't actually have. But centuries later, the ultimate mediator came, Jesus Christ. And from all eternity, Jesus sat on the throne of heaven with God the Father. Jesus wasn't just offered the inheritance, Jesus had it. From all eternity, Jesus had all the glory, all the honor, all the joy, all the riches. It was His from the very beginning. So when God offers this inheritance to Moses, Moses turned down something that was only being offered to him, but Jesus always had it, and yet Jesus gave it up so that we could have it. Because, friends, the cross is the ultimate sign that shows us the glory of God. In John chapter 17, Jesus, it's the very night before he was betrayed and crucified on the cross, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, whenever Jesus talks about the hour, he's always talking about the hour of his death on the cross. Jesus is saying that the cross is the ultimate sign on which you see the glory of God. So everything the Israelites saw in Egypt, in the wilderness, all of that was like a seed, but the full flower of that, Jesus is saying, is on the cross. 
The cross is the ultimate sign where we see the glory of God because on the cross, that's the ultimate plague. It didn't come down on Egypt. The ultimate plague came down on Jesus. The cross is the ultimate exodus. So that instead of Moses parting the waters and making a way through the sea for the Israelites, Jesus drowned in the waters of destruction so that he could make a way through for us. And on the cross, it's the ultimate wilderness so that instead of the Israelites perishing in the wilderness, Jesus perished in the wilderness of the cross so that we could receive the inheritance and enter into the promised land of real life in God. Do you see the sign? And will you, even more importantly, will you shema this sign, the sign of the cross? If you're here this morning and... um, Maybe you're exploring Christianity. Maybe you're skeptical. Here's what this might mean for you. Um, If you're exploring Christianity, you're skeptical, you might think, look, there are thousands of gods out there. Why in the world should I put my trust in this God? Well, here's one reason at least to consider. Um, Think about what kind of a story you're in. And here's what I mean. Let me give you an example. Um, nowadays, when we go to the airport, we have to take off our shoes, right? Why is that? It's because 21 years ago, something happened in history that changed the world. Now, we also cherish, in our culture, we cherish things like individual dignity and human rights and caring for the poor and the oppressed. Why is that? It's not because we're so modern and enlightened. It's because 2,000 years ago, something happened in history that changed the world, the life, death, and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason that our culture values things like dignity, human rights, and caring for the poor so much is because of Jesus, because something happened in history out of all those thousands of other gods and thousands of other spiritual paths Only Christianity, only the Bible shows us a God who actually entered history and did something in history that changed the world. You may not be ready at this point to really trust this God, to shema Jesus at this point, but at the very least, if you're exploring Christianity, would you grapple with this sign? Would you grapple with this story and allow it to weigh on you and to to press on you? And if you are a Christian this morning, let me encourage you with this. Listen, following Jesus means following him into really scary places that a lot of times we don't want to go. It means dying to all the ways that our world navigates things like sex, money, and power. It means loving our enemies instead of canceling them or condemning them. It means facing all kinds of darkness and distortions in our own hearts and lives and walking through the pain of what it would take to actually find healing from those things in Jesus. Following Jesus means following him right into the heart of all the shadows that terrify us, but then through the shadow lands into the real life that God has in store for us. But that's scary to do. How in the world are we going to do that? The only way is to remember the one who's in the room with us, that his presence is with us. If you're familiar with them, you may remember that at the very end of the Harry Potter books, uh, the young wizard Harry um, realizes that the only way that he can defeat the evil Lord Voldemort is to walk into battle, face Voldemort, and give up his life. Harry realizes, I must die. 
And as he steps into the shadow of the forest where he knows Voldemort is waiting for him, he's, he's petrified. And as soon as he steps into the forest, a swarm of those ghostly dementors surround him, and it stops Harry in his tracks. And he thinks to himself, I don't think I can go on. He is absolutely terrified. But then Harry remembers that he has the magical resurrection stone that allows him to see his dead parents. So he takes out the stone, and and, and it's the stone that's going to allow him to see his parents, especially his mother, Lily, who was a mediator for Harry. She stood in between Harry and Lord Voldemort and gave her life so that her baby Harry could live. And and as Harry takes out the resurrection stone, he sees his dead parents, and he says to them, you'll stay with me? And his father says, to the very end. And then Harry looks at his mother. He feasts his eyes upon her, the one who gave her life for him. And he says, stay with me to the end. And they do. And then Harry walks into the forest to face Voldemort. And as he does, it says their presence was his courage and the very reason that he was able to keep putting one foot in front of the other. If the presence of the one who gave her life for him could enable Harry to face anything, how much more would the presence of the one who gave his life for you, the presence of the one who's always there, he's always in the room, and who gave his life for you, how much more would his presence enable you to step into the shadows and walk through those shadow lands into the real life that he has waiting for you? Do you see the sign? And even more importantly, Will you shema the sign? Will you shema the glory of God that we see on the cross of Jesus Christ? If you're willing, would you pray with me? Abba, Father, we confess so often we don't see you. And so often we, we act like you're not there. And as alien as it may seem to us and, and, and hard to gr- wrestle with, Lord, when we act like you're not there, we do treat you with contempt. We do not trust you. We do not shema your voice, but you're always there. And not only are you always there, you are a God who is always pursuing us, always calling us deeper into your joy, your love, and your life. Help us this morning to shema you, Lord. Help us to see you. Help us to see the sign of your glory on the cross of Jesus. And we pray especially that the more we see you, the more we shema you, that the more that we would be aware of your presence in our life, calling us and walking with us into the shadows and through the shadowlands, into the life that you have for us. Help us to know that you are always with us in the room and that no matter what painful, scary things we're facing, you're always there with us, that we may always walk with you. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we are going to receive our offering at this time. Um, we don't pass a basket due to health concerns. There is a basket in the hallway on your way out. Uh, most people find it easiest and safest to uh, give online. So if you're a member or regular attender here, this is uh, an opportunity for us to partner together in God's call um, to this church in this community. And, and part of our way of um, Shema, of, of giving our Shema to God, is, is that we would follow Him in his, the work that He's called us to in this community. Our vision as a church is to see a city made new by the gospel spiritually, socially, and culturally. So if you're a member or attender, this is an opportunity for us to Shema God together. But if you are visiting or new this morning, we would invite you to remain our guest and not feel any obligation to give. 
Um, instead, let us know if there's any way that we can help you. There is information on our website about how you can get in touch with us, especially if you're in need of any help or service at this time. Please get in touch with us. Let us know. Um, we have resources available to help you. Uh, but for all of us, this is an opportunity for us to shma, to listen, to ponder, but also to consider how is God calling us to respond to His Word, to respond to the sign that He's given us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to invite our musicians to play. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these gifts, these offerings. We thank You for the sacrificial generosity of so many in this church, and we pray this morning that You would multiply these gifts, that many others may come to see the sign of Your glory and Your love in Jesus. And Father, that, that their Shema would lead to transformed lives and a transformed city as well. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.